It was prophesied by Simeon when Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby. Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And in those words, Simeon was foretelling that Jesus would divide people. He was foretelling that some in Israel would fall and some in Israel would rise on account of this baby who was presented there in the temple whom he saw. There were some who were going to stumble over Christ as over the stumbling stone which had been prophesied in the Old Testament. There would be some who would rise, that they would see Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, and they would believe on him and have life in his name. And having life in Christ's name meant that they would not only have life now, but they would have eternal life and would be raised by Christ on the last day. In short, Simeon prophesied that Jesus would be a dividing line, that people would rise or would fall because of him. And because of him, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. And this is exactly what we see this morning in our text in John chapter 7. We see that Jesus is the dividing line. And we see the crowd so clearly divided because of Jesus. And so if you would, please look with me to our text, which is John chapter 7. will be in verses 25 through 52 this morning. John 7. 25 through 52. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, We know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out 
saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, in these verses that we have just read, and really throughout an even larger chunk of John chapter 7, John oscillates, as it were, between reporting the the whispering and the various opinions of the crowd on the one hand, and then the teaching of Jesus on the other hand. The opinions of the crowd are diverse and varied, and the teaching of Jesus reaches its pinnacle there in verses 37 and 38 on the last and great day of the feast. And so, as we consider this second half of John chapter 7 this morning, we'll do so under two main headings. First, Jesus divides people. And secondly, come to Jesus and drink. Jesus divides people, come to Jesus and drink. And so, first of all, Jesus divides people. Now, as early as verse 12 here in John chapter 7, John has been weaving the comments of the crowd into his narrative. And we can see quite clearly that the crowd is divided. And we do well to remember that this certainly is a a diverse crowd. Not only are there people from Jerusalem that are there at the Feast of Booths, but there are also crowds of Jews from Galilee and probably elsewhere in the uh, the greater Roman world who are there from the Feast. Again, this was uh, reported to be, the, the Feast of Booths was reported to be the most popular of the feasts for which the Jews would come up to Jerusalem. So you've got a, a large crowd there, very diverse crowd. And in a crowd that diverse, there were bound to be a lot of different takes on Jesus. And you see that dichotomy there in verse 12. As some said that he was a good man, and others said, He led the people astray. Now, when we get to verse 25, we see John dealing specifically with the residents of Jerusalem. The residents of Jerusalem are trying to sort out the current state of the judgment with regard to Jesus. These residents of Jerusalem knew that 
uh, knew something that probably some of the other people who had just come up to Jerusalem but lived elsewhere, they knew something that these outsiders didn't know. They knew, actually, that their leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. Some of the crowd, is in, as we see up in verse 20, in their interaction with Jesus, they didn't, they didn't really know that there was somebody out trying to kill Jesus. But the people in Jerusalem, the residents there, knew that someone was trying to kill Jesus. And so they're a bit puzzled. They, they know that, that the rulers have been wanting to kill Jesus, but yet here Jesus is. He's teaching openly and publicly, and nobody's doing a thing about it. And so they're scratching their heads a little bit, and they say in the second half of verse 26, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They're asking, have, have our leaders really concluded that Jesus is the Christ? They sure aren't acting like they're taking him as a serious threat. Maybe after all, they did conclude that Jesus is the Messiah. But then, notice how they present an obstacle. An obstacle that's based on their own misunderstanding. They say in verse 27, However, we know where this man is from. But whenever uh, the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now it seems that in their thought, probably what was functioning here was that they probably thought that the Messiah would be born and would grow up in obscurity and then kind of all of a sudden would appear onto the scene in his ministry. Certainly, they were familiar with the Old Testament prophecy in Micah 5, 2, that the Christ would come from Bethlehem. And no doubt the, uh, the people knew that, but nevertheless, it seems that they had this expectation that they would almost be, be ignorant of, of the background and the, the growing up of the Messiah. And they, here in the case of Jesus, they, they knew that Jesus had grown up in Galilee. And the fact that they knew the whereabouts of Jesus' background seems to be, in their mind, the very thing that disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah. We know where this guy's from. When the Messiah comes, he'll just kind of appear on the scene. Jesus is willing to grant, in verse 28, that in a sense they did know where he was from. He was from Galilee. That's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up there and lived there. But even though they did know that, they did not know the whole story. They did not know that he'd been born in Bethlehem. And they were simply wrong in their supposition that everyone would be ignorant of the Messiah's origins. That's not a necessary conclusion to which the Old Testament messianic prophecies should have driven them. Which one of the prophecies requires ignorance of the Messiah's origins? I don't think there is one. This was a misconception on their own part. And so Jesus acknowledges that, yeah, in a way, they, they know where he's from. They knew where he grew up. But he also pushes back a little bit on that claim that they know where he's from. He says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. In other words, Jesus came from the Father, the Father sent him into the world. And these Jews did not know the Father. And so they did not know the one who had sent Jesus into the world. And in that sense, they're actually ignorant of Jesus' background. They may have known the names of his mother and of his adoptive earthly father, but they did not know his heavenly father. 
And this division in the crowd is even further described in verses 30 and 31 as we see that some want to seize Jesus but yet are providentially hindered from their design. Meanwhile, others are concluding that Jesus is indeed the Christ simply based on the number of signs that Jesus had performed. Now, we don't know the, the strength and the depth of the faith by which these people believed, but nevertheless, they had at at least a surface level belief that the Christ must be before them in the person of Jesus. And meanwhile, the chief priests and Pharisees are certainly not thrilled at what the crowds are muttering and saying about Jesus, and so they want to get this problem eliminated, taken out of the way. Their way of attempting to take care of the Jesus problem is to send these these officers or these temple guards to arrest him. Now, these officers would have been drawn from the ranks of the Levites and basically a police force or a security team, if you will. And their main task would have been to, to keep order in the temple and the temple complex. But they could also be sent to deal with issues uh, further outlying uh, than simply the grounds of the temple. And see, these men are now tasked with arresting Jesus. And so they, they go out to arrest him. And Jesus says there in verses 33 and 34 that he'll only be with them for a little while longer. After that, they'll still seek him, but he will have returned to the one who sent him. And where he was going, they would not be able to come. Now, the vagueness with which he spoke was was very baffling to them. They can't figure out exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so John, all along in his narrative here, has been building this tension And he brings us then to the high point in the chapter with this claim that Jesus makes for himself in verse 37 and his call to other people to come to him. And we'll we'll come back to this in a few moments because this deserves a good deal of consideration in its own right. The high point here is, is Jesus inviting people to come to him and believe in him. And then, immediately after that high point, in verses 40 and following, we see that Division still persists. And there's not only division, there's also confusion. It goes all the way through the chapter. And so if you look down to verses 40 and following, we see that some of the people, upon hearing this invitation uh, that Jesus gave for people to come to him, they say, this is certainly the prophet, in reference to the prophet like Moses, who would come into the world as prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Others were saying, this is the Christ, Now, to us, this might appear to be a little bit strange because we know that Jesus is both the Christ and the prophet. He fulfills prophecies for both. The Jews at this point were evidently not convinced that the same person would fulfill both offices. To us, it almost seems like a no-brainer that the same person would fulfill both offices. It almost seems like the prophecies couldn't have been fulfilled any other way. But we would do well to to be humble and thoughtful before we criticize them on this point. We do well to honestly ponder how they would have known that the prophet foretold by Moses must necessarily be the Christ and not some other accompanying figure. We would also do well to recognize that we too probably have some misconceptions in regard to future events that have been foretold to us in Scripture. In God's good time, those prophecies will be fulfilled And when light is shined into the darkness of our ignorance, we may well be surprised at how dull we were at interpreting the prophecies in God's word. 
But anyway, some think Jesus is the prophet, some think he's the Christ, and some are still hung up on the question of his origin, verses 41 and 42. Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? John sums it up by saying, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. There's this whole whole spectrum of opinion about Jesus. Some people in the crowd want to seize Jesus, but again, nobody laid hands on him. Again, this is because, as verse 30 puts it, his hour had not yet come. God the Father was orchestrating these events. The Son of Man was to go exactly as it would be, as it was written of him. And it would not be permitted for anyone to lay a hand on Jesus before that time had come. And then what of those officers who had been sent by the chief priests to arrest Jesus? They just couldn't do it. They go and they are near Jesus, near enough to hear what he's saying, and somehow or another they're captured by the words of Jesus. And when they had to give an answer to their superiors about why they didn't arrest him, they simply said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We need to remember, these men are Levites. These men knew the scriptures. They knew much of the truth. And something within them probably, probably resonated with the truth that they heard from the lips of Jesus. It wasn't that they wanted to arrest Jesus with all their heart, but they were just providentially prevented from doing so. They just couldn't do it. There was actually something going on inside of these men that gave them pause and hesitancy when it came to actually pulling the trigger and arresting Jesus. And notice how John lays out the events here that followed uh, these guards revealing their hesitancy to arrest Jesus. They describe what gave them pause, and the chief priests and the Pharisees are absolutely enraged. And you can, you can just hear them seething with, with anger and contempt in their response. They say, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You can see the prestige that they reckoned belonged to them. In other words, they were the gatekeepers. They were the scholars. They were the ones who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And therefore, they ought to be the ones who were able to recognize the Messiah when he came. And you can see the disdain with which they viewed the common Jewish people. They said that the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And indeed, in some of the writings of the, the Jewish rabbis, they were very scornful and disdainful toward the common people. They used the phrase, the, the people of the land, in a very negative, technical sense. They used it in reference to people who did not know the law. And for them, it seems that not knowing the law meant not only not knowing the Old Testament scriptures, but also not knowing the oral tradition of the rabbis that explained the law. One rabbinical school of thought said that if anyone has learned the scripture and the tradition, but has not served as a student of the learned, he is one of the people of the land. If he has learned neither the scripture nor the tradition, he is an uneducated man. If he has learned neither the scripture nor the tradition, they would say he's no different than an animal. And indeed... One generation before Christ, Rabbi Hillel said, A brutish man does not fear sin, and no people of the land is pious. 
And so, in other words, this is not just a, a one-off here for the, for the chief priests and Pharisees to speak of the crowd in this way. This was kind of par for the course for the way that the Jewish leaders looked down on the common people. They uh, said these kinds of things in regard to the uneducated Jewish people. They were, in the minds of their leaders, the great unwashed masses who couldn't be depended upon in religious matters. And so, in other words, it's of no significance if people, part of this crowd, believe in Jesus. It signifies nothing if they think that Jesus is the Messiah. What you need to look at is the rulers and the Pharisees. Have any of them believed in Jesus? No. That should put an end to all dispute. But then, our old friend Nicodemus shows up again. Right? He's, he's one of them. He's one of, the, one of the rulers. And at this juncture, he ventures to say something that is, in and of itself, it's more or less neutral as far as it relates to Jesus. He simply advocates that Jesus ought to be given due process under the law. Right? He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? Now, earlier Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night, presumably out of fear from what the other Leaders would think, and now he ventures a word in support of due process. He hasn't simply jumped on the bandwagon of the leaders by joining in their upfront, unheard condemnation of Jesus. But even this modest appeal for due process is too much for his fellow leaders among the chief priests and Pharisees, and they turn their rage that had previously been aimed at the guards and at the crowds, they turn their rage now and unload on Nicodemus. And say, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, strictly speaking, this is not true. Jonah, for instance, was a prophet who was from Galilee. And so here it's, it's difficult to know whether the rulers meant to say that the prophet, that is, the prophet like Moses, would not come out of Galilee, or whether they had just simply lost their cool and blown their tops in a moment of passion and anger and said something that, when they were thinking more critically and more carefully, when their cooler heads were prevailing, they would have recognized that this was a, a false claim and they shouldn't have said it. Regardless of all that, it is easy to see here that things in Jerusalem are getting tense, right? There's a, there's a broad spectrum of opinion about Jesus. There's division in the ranks. Some of the crowds believe in Jesus. And some in the crowds want to to seize Jesus and arrest him. Some think he is a deceiver. The temple guards are hesitant to take action. And Nicodemus pleads for due process. And the chief priests and Pharisees hold in contempt all who are not quick to denounce and condemn Jesus. Such was the division in Jerusalem that Jesus brought during this visit to the Feast of Booths. Indeed, Simeon was absolutely correct say that the Christ child was appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's no wonder that Jesus still brings division today. He said that it would be like this. Luke 12, 51 and 52. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. What this means is that if you follow after Jesus, there are going to be plenty of voices that oppose you for doing so. And in particular, one of the things that this 
demonstrates so clearly is that sometimes, and perhaps even more than just sometimes, those very vehement voices of opposition to Jesus are going to come from folks who are very learned and seemingly intelligent people. In some cases, the opposition to Jesus is going to come from people who have a lot of biblical knowledge. In some cases, the opposition to Jesus is going to come from people who have an appearance of being very intelligent, very intellectual. In some cases, it might even come from people who appear to be very holy, very moral, or very outwardly upstanding people. These chief priests and Pharisees were certainly educated and intelligent. They certainly knew the Old Testament quite well, and they likely had the appearance of holiness, sanctity, and morality on their side. They made it look like believing in Jesus was the ignorant way, and also the believing in Jesus was the ungodly way. And this kind of dynamic still goes on today. I want to be clear. I don't know what happened to the people here in Jerusalem who believed in Jesus, right? We, we see that John, when he uses this word belief, he uses it to cover all kinds of belief, from, from very temporary and halting belief that's just kind of intrigued by the miracles temporarily. And John uses belief to, to describe true and, and lasting belief. And so, and so when we have you know, some statements here about some in the crowd believing in him or some in the crowd uh, claiming that, that he is the Christ, it's, it's difficult to know you know, who really turned out to be true disciples and who truly followed Jesus, who, you know, would have been eventually added to the church, like on the day of Pentecost or soon thereafter, or whether a great majority of these simply believed in a very temporary manner and shortly thereafter abandoned Jesus. I don't know. But what I will say here is that what we see here in John 7 is an illustration of the phenomenon that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When he said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's 1 Corinthians 1. 26 through 29. The intellectuals that are lauded by the world will often be no friends of Christ. Now, there'll be, there'll be some exceptions, but as a proverbial rule, it is often the case that God calls to himself the weak, the foolish, and the ignorant, the people whom the elites of a culture will want to regard as the unwashed masses, as those who are under a curse. And that's all right. Let's just be humble and let's just come to Christ. Let's not worry about what other people may say or think of us. Let's look at ourselves for who we are as needy sinners, look to Christ as the Savior, and go to him. Augustine put it well in the Confessions when he said, Let them, the strong and the mighty, laugh at us, but let us who are poor and needy confess unto thee. That's the way it ought to be. We can say, that's all right. If you want to laugh at me for following Jesus... Go ahead and laugh. I'm going to follow after Christ. And now, as we focus in then on Jesus' invitation that he gives there in verses 37 through 39, we'll have a very strong encouragement to do just this. 
A strong encouragement to forget about what the world thinks and to go to Jesus. And this is our second point, which is come to Jesus and drink. And so we read there in verses 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, as we consider this invitation from Jesus, the first thing that we ought to do is to consider the context in which these words were spoken. This is the last and great day of the Feast of Booths. On the seven days of the Feast of Booths, one of the things that would happen is that there would be a a procession from the pool of Siloam back to the temple, and they would take a, a golden vessel and pick water up out of the pool of Siloam, and then they would process back to the temple. And the priest would walk around the altar with this, uh, with this golden vessel of water while Psalms 113 through 118 were, were being sung, the, the, the Hallel Psalms, as they are sometimes called. And then the water would be mixed with the wine of the daily drink offering. And then that mixture of water and wine would be poured into silver bowls and then would be poured out before the Lord. And in doing this, the the Jews were were looking back to the Lord's miraculous provision of water for them in the wilderness. After all, the Feast of Booths was a commemoration of how the Lord had taken care of the people through their wilderness wanderings. They were to live in booths, to remember that they had lived in booths in the wilderness when the Lord brought them up out of Egypt. And then in the pouring of the water, they We're looking back to how the Lord had provided water out of the rock. Like we read this morning in in Exodus 17, or there's a a later account of water that was given later in in Numbers chapter 20. And so they're, they're looking back to the Lord's miraculous provision of water. But in Jewish thought, they were also looking forward to the Messianic age and to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you may recall that already in the Gospel of John, we've seen this connection between water and the Spirit Back in John chapter 3, where Jesus spoke of being born again as being born of water or born of the Spirit. In other words, to be born again is the same thing as to be born of water or to be born of the Spirit. Water symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And this connection between water and the Spirit was not a, not a new connection for Jesus to make. The Old Testament had already made this. And so, for instance, Ezekiel 36 25 through 27, we read this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will also cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This Cleansing with water, symbolizing the cleansing from sin, is tied to the giving of the Holy Spirit and the making of, of new hearts for the people. Likewise, we see this in Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so you can see the significance here when Jesus stands up the last and great day of the Feast of Booths, 
And he cries out and says, if anyone, who, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, that is, if anyone is sensible of spiritual need, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Come to Jesus and drink freely of the water of life. The spiritual needs will be met. The thirst will be quenched just as water flowed out of the rock in the wilderness and satisfied that thirsty multitude and gave life to them. So it is with Jesus Christ. He calls the thirsty to come to him. He calls the thirsty to believe in him. He is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament times. And John does a, does a great job of, of showing us various aspects of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. We saw in chapter 6 how the manna was pointing ahead to Christ. How Christ is the bread of life who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And now we see here in John chapter 7 that the water out of the rock... Was, was pointing ahead to Christ and pointing ahead to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through Christ. In verse 38, Jesus goes even further. And he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on, of course, in verse 39 to explain what Jesus was speaking of, that he was speaking of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But... What should we make of Jesus' appeal to Scripture there in verse 38? He said, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. To which Scripture was Jesus referring? Now the words which he used there are not a direct quotation of any biblical passage. And so it must be that what Jesus is doing here is appealing to multiple Old Testament scriptures which speak of the grace of God or the gift of the Holy Spirit in terms of water. And indeed, there are many of them. We, we've already considered the one from Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 44, 3. Here, here are a few others uh, that, that speak of the gift of the grace of God in terms of water. Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore... You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 41, 17 and 18. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. And the dry land, fountains of water. Or Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And indeed, some of the Jewish rabbis said, as the first redeemer, that is Moses, caused the well to spring up, so the last redeemer shall call waters to spring up. And in that connection, they cited Joel, 8, Joel 3.18 as, uh, as their text. But, but the point is, is, that, is that Jesus here makes this connection between, between himself and the, the rock and the waters flowing out, and he extends the invitation to anyone who thirsts. And the thing to notice here is that this grace that comes to those who go to Christ this refreshing and this reviving of the Holy Spirit, 
not only satisfies their own needs and longings, satisfies us, but the Holy Spirit also turns all who come to Christ into channels of grace toward others. Having tasted of the Lord's grace ourselves, we become agents of grace toward others. Out of our innermost being flow these rivers of living waters. Jesus didn't say that we become pools or ponds or reservoirs of water, that we collect it all and hold it in. He says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. We become rivers by which the grace that has reached us overflows to reach more and more people as well. And so what what does this mean? It means that having tasted the Lord's kindness in our salvation, we will labor for the salvation of others. We'll share the gospel with people. We'll work together with other Christians to facilitate missions and evangelistic preaching and church planting and those kinds of things. We'll look after widows and orphans in their distress and seek to care for those who are in need. We can't take care of everybody, but we'll be able to help some and be able to take care of some. And we will labor to do that. We'll seek to encourage and edify other believers by testifying to God's goodness to us, God's faithfulness to us. Sometimes this will be done by sharing an edifying thought or sharing a passage of scripture that has been encouraging and helpful to us. Sometimes it will be testifying to the grace of God in someone else's life, pointing out to them how you see the work of God in them, how you see God growing them up as a Christian, conforming them to the image of of Christ. And then maybe you can list off some ways in which you see that happening, ways in which you see them growing in holiness and godliness. Sometimes these rivers of living water can overflow to others just in passing, in a passing conversation, maybe before or after a church service. Sometimes these rivers can flow during during a meal or during an intentional time of discipleship. Sometimes these rivers can overflow in a setting like Sunday school or small groups or the Wednesday night inductive Bible study where we have kind of a venue for a a multitude of people to, to weigh in on the subject or to testify of God's work in their lives and their grace, God's grace and faithfulness to them in some way. There are lots of ways for these rivers of living water to to overflow to the the benefit and comfort and encouragement of others. And it is a a great blessing for those of us who have have interacted with with other Christians and and heard the the encouragement that, that they can give to us as they share scripture with us or share something encouraging with us. Isn't that like a cool drink of water to refresh us on a hot day? Doesn't that do good to your soul? This is a wonderful reality that Jesus puts before us here. All of us know what it's like to be thirsty on a hot day and then receive that cool drink of water. And we know how refreshing that is. And so the question this morning is this. Are you thirsty? Do you sense your spiritual need? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you feel guilty for the ways in which you have rejected God and His ways, the ways in which you have hated both God and your neighbors? Do you sense that apart from Christ, you're under condemnation? That you're under the judgment of God? If you've never yet come to Christ, then you should. Jesus invites you to come. 
You should feel guilty because you are. You should feel thirsty because apart from him, you have nothing to sustain your soul. And so if that describes you this morning, come to Christ. Come to Christ and trust in him and find the refreshment that is to be found in him. And I know that many of you here this morning have already done this very thing. You've already been in that position that I just described. You have seen your need, you have felt it, and you've come to Christ and drank and been refreshed. You've trusted in Him, you have believed. And now you have this river of living water that is flowing in you and through you and out of you. Being filled with the Spirit of grace yourselves, you are now being agents of grace to others. Praise be to God for that, and may he bless you and strengthen you in that. But dear brother and dear sister, please know that when you grow tired, when you grow weary, and when you grow weak, you can keep returning to Christ. We should all return to Christ every day and draw and drink from him. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And we should do this every day, just as, uh, just as feeding on Christ, as we talked about in John 6, was a, was a daily thing in which we, which we trust in Christ and draw our spiritual life and sustenance from Him, so also it is here. We obviously come to Christ and drink at the beginning of our walk with Christ, but it shouldn't stop there. We should keep coming to Christ every day and receive from Him this life-giving water of life. We should, as Paul says in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, right? It is the Spirit who produces in us godly fruit and godly characteristics. And we have these godly characteristics only as we abide in Christ, only as we abide in the vine. So dear brother, dear sister, continue to go to Christ, continue to abide in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for Christ who satisfies the deepest longings and the deepest needs of our souls. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would come to Christ continually, not just once, but every day for the rest of our lives. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, that he would be conforming us to the image of Christ. Pray that you would help us, that we would abide in Christ and walk with him from day to day for your glory. That we would hold out your gospel to the lost, that we would edify and build up our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.